Who is God? This is what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. And actually, I, I should explain, we're going to do it this week. Then we're going to take a pause next week because we're going to have a family worship. We're going to do something special next week, invite you back for that. And then we're going to continue in this series. But what I want to do today is just kind of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about for several weeks after our family worship next week and we we get back into this in the month of November. And what I want to do is introduce you to, or more likely remind you of, some of the themes that we find in the book of Exodus. So we have been talking the last few weeks about how we read the Bible and how important it is to think about the way that we think about God and how our understanding of who God is, and I'm talking about his character, his heart, how that impacts the way that we read Scripture. And so what I'd like to do is collectively together take a journey through the book of Exodus. Exodus might not be the first place you go when you think about discovering God's love, but I believe that in the book of Exodus, we do discover God's love. Throughout the first five books of the Bible, we are introduced to God through stories. Israel, as a nation, was introduced to God through the story of the Exodus. And so what we're going to do today is meet God through the story of the way Israel met God in the wilderness through the Exodus, if that makes sense. Okay, so journey with me, if you would, through this story. I want to thank Glenn, because on Wednesday nights, he's done an excellent job of leading us through a study of the book of Genesis, and that helps us get to where we are in the book of Exodus. And so the timing has been really great. And throughout the book of Genesis, we see the mighty providential hand of God at work through the descendants of Abraham. God had made Abraham a promise, and he intended to keep that promise. He had also told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that there would come a time in your future when your descendants would be living in a land that didn't belong to them under the heavy hand of an oppressive leadership. And that's what we find in the book of Exodus. And so God, through again his providential hand, takes Joseph, brings Joseph to Egypt, puts Joseph in a position of authority and power, and through Joseph, brings Jacob and his other children to the land of Goshen in Egypt so that they might have all those blessings that they enjoy in that place. But then we get to the book of Exodus, and we open up that book, and in the first chapter we read about this is not Joseph's time any longer. And there's a new pharaoh in charge of Egypt, and he doesn't remember his relationship with Joseph and his descendants. And so now the children of Israel have gone from being some of Pharaoh's favorite people to being hated by the Pharaoh in rule at that time. And he oppresses them, and he puts them into slavery, and they begin to cry out to God, and God hears their cry. And so we're introduced to the character of Moses. And through Moses, God is going to redeem his people, and he's going to introduce himself to a new generation of Abraham's descendants. And I want to just kind of hopscotch through the book of Exodus this morning and remind you of a few things. Number one, in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, you remember the story of the burning bush. God appears to Moses in this bush that is burning, but what's not happening? It's not burnt up, right? It's on fire, but it's not burning 
down. Something unusual is happening, and Moses sees it, and he goes closer, and then the voice of God cries out from the bush and says, remove your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy ground. And God begins to introduce himself to Moses, and I would just draw your attention to this specific verse. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, God said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And I want you to think about that, because as God is introducing himself to Moses, he recognizes what's at play in Moses' life. Moses was a Hebrew, but where was Moses raised? In Pharaoh's very household, right? And so he's an Egyptian, but he's a Hebrew at the same time, and he's got a passion for his Hebrew brothers as he sees their oppression. And so Moses is very much stuck between two worlds. And as God appears to Moses and begins to build a relationship with Moses and calls Moses to the work that he has in mind for him, he realizes that to Moses, he is the God of his fathers. But he's not necessarily Moses' God yet. That relationship is going to take some time. And we see that unfolding throughout this entire generation of Israelites. Not just Moses, but all of the Israelites that he is going to lead out of Egyptian bondage through the Sinai Peninsula and eventually up to the Promised Land. That entire generation, they knew of the God of their fathers, but was he their God at that time? Did they have an intimate relationship with him? Did they have a covenant relationship with him? Did they really know who he was other than these stories that they had inherited from previous generations? And then we get to Exodus chapter 14, skipping over really the whole story of the Exodus. And forgive me for doing that, but I hope you'll take some time to read it on your own. In the first few chapters of the book of Exodus, we see God now is going to use Moses as a spokesperson. And he tells Pharaoh to do what? Let my people go. Right? And of course, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh is resistant to that call, and so what does God do to exert pressure on Pharaoh? But these ten plagues, and it culminates with the worst of them all, where the firstborn of all of the Egyptians is killed in one night. And so that's finally the final blow for Pharaoh, and he releases the Israelites, and he tells Moses, take your people and go. And so God leads them through Moses out into the wilderness, and they get to the Red Sea, and now there's a great body of water between them and where they're going to go. And God tells Moses to have them camp in that spot. And he tells Moses something shocking. He says, I want you to stay here because I know what Pharaoh is about to do. He's about to change his mind. He's about to harden his heart yet again. He's about to get angry over the fact that he let Israel go and he's going to pursue you. But I know all this is going to happen and I'm going to let it happen because it's going to play right into my hand because God is going to show Egypt who he is and in showing Egypt who he is he's going to show Israel who he is but from Israel's perspective this is a terrifying thing they look up and they see Pharaoh and his approaching army and they're terrified now in spite of the fact that they had just watched God at work through these plagues they're still terrified of who Pharaoh was and the danger and the threat and the power that he represented and so this is what happens in Exodus chapter 14 they see the threat of Pharaoh and his approaching army they say to Moses is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness and we're introduced to a theme 
that we find repeated throughout Exodus, that whenever the Israelites get scared in their present situation, they accuse Moses and ultimately God of bringing them in the wilderness, not to redeem them, but to kill them. Were there not enough grave sites in Egypt that you had to bring us out here so we could just die in the wilderness? This is the accusation they're making against Moses because of their fear. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? And then listen to what they say. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're so uncertain in this moment of who God really is that in their minds, he changed his mind. He brought him out here, but he's not going to finally defeat Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to have the upper hand, and it would have been better just to stay as slaves than to taste God's redemptive power. Imagine that mindset. But this isn't the only time they give way to that fear. Like I said, this sets a precedent. And it begins a pattern that we see unfold over and over again in the Exodus story. Whenever they're overcome by their own fear, they blame God, they get angry at God, and they fail to trust in God. And it all begins right here. But what we find happen next is something very interesting. First of all, Moses' response in the following verses. Moses said to the people, fear not and stand firm. Now, had God given them a reason to overcome their fear by putting their trust in him? Yes, he had. But apparently it wasn't enough yet at this moment in time. So stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And then I love this statement. Listen to what he says. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. This is it. This is God's final blow. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have one job to do. And what is it? Be silent. Be silent. My dad is one of those people who's gifted at uh, a lot of things. And when I was a small child, he was doing a lot of construction work. And I can remember going into our little basement in our little lakeside cottage that I grew up in and being enamored with his collection of tools and, and loving watching him work with his hands and with his tools. And he still does that today and seeing what he could create. And as a child does, there were a lot of times I wanted to get involved and help. Right? And he was really good at giving me stuff to do. Right, Here's a board with some nails in it. You can do this. So it felt like I was helping. But you can relate as a parent, because I'm sure you've said this to your child at some point. There were things that I could not help with. And his answer was, if you really want to help, <laughs> what do you say, parents? Stay out of the way. Right? If you really want to help, just be quiet. Right? If you really want to help, just let me do what only I can do. And that kind of hurt my feelings as a child, but I get it now as an adult. There's things you invite your kids to partake in, and there's things that they can't do yet. Their job is just to let you do it for them. And this is what God recognizes about Israel in that moment. They're not ready for battle yet. They're terrified. They've been an oppressed people for generations. They just want to see redemption. And so what does Moses say to them? God will fight for you, and all you have to do is sit there, be silent, and watch what he's about to do on your behalf. And they do. They watch it unfold. You remember the story, right? And can you imagine this scene, this wall of water on either side as God parts the Red Sea and they follow through on dry land. And as soon as Israel, or excuse me, Egypt's army pursues, what does God do? He closes them up and swallows them up with the sea. And that's the end. That's the final act of God's redemption as he breaks their bondage and leads them into where he's going to take them from there. 
And this becomes very formative for Moses. And everything God did throughout the Exodus is formative for Moses. But this event in particular seems to have an enormous impact on Moses. And in chapter 15, we find recorded for us one of the songs of Moses. Where he is, through poetic form, expressing how in awe he is of what he just watched God do. And he says something profound here. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, Moses says. And I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Do you catch what has happened throughout this Exodus journey? That when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, this is his father's God. This man who's Egyptian and Hebrew and trying to sort his way out in the world. But now he's all in. He is all Hebrew. He is all Israelite. He is 100% Abraham's offspring. And now this is not just my father's God. This is what? This is my God. What is Moses doing? He's expressing his trust in God. And God had earned that trust by showing Moses what the power of his redemption looks like. Now, all of Israel had seen the same things Moses had seen, but it appears that they're not yet where Moses is. They're not all in on trusting in God yet. And so, after that beautiful song expressing Moses' hope in the salvation of God, this is what we find. We find that Israel was really good at one thing. Grumbling. right, Whining. Complaining. And so they're brand new in the wilderness. And of course they're intimidated by the fact that they're in the wilderness. This isn't like Egypt. This is something different. And they're going to have to rely completely on God if they're going to survive in this new environment. But the first thing they do is they come to a place where there's water, but they can't drink it. It's bitter water. It's not drinkable water. And immediately, they start to distrust. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And you remember how that story unfolds? God tells Moses, take a log and throw it in the water. And it's very interesting. Why did God ask him to do that? Well, I have no idea. Right? I'm back to what Ryan said before. I have no idea why he did that. But he's just illustrating that this is God doing this and not Moses. Right? But he turns the water into drinkable water. And then the next place he takes them is this beautiful desert oasis full of springs and an abundance of water. Israel sees a wilderness with no water. God gives them what? Water. Whenever they see something to make them afraid, God overcomes it and provides for them. So this is the first example of their grumbling. This is chapter 15. Then we turn all the way over to, oh no, it's just the very next chapter. Chapter 16, guess what happens? And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. What is it this time? First it was water, now it's food. What are we going to eat? We're in the wilderness. How are we going to sustain this giant group of people wandering through the wilderness? And so they grumble against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And here again come the accusations from a place of fear. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Here we are again. It's better to die in Egypt than to live under the providence of God. Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Now, I can relate to this, right? Because you, you take me in a place where good food isn't available, and the first thing I'm doing is reminiscing about the meat pots and the bread, right? right? We grew up in the Midwest. In the Midwest, there are two food groups. There's meat and there's bread. These are the two things that you eat at every single meal, right? Well, there's also cheese. 
But that's, that's the only condiment we have. We just put it on everything, right? Okay. But meat and bread, right? They're go- you can imagine when you've been hungry and you reminisce about, oh, there it is. You ever traveled somewhere far away and the food's different? And, you know, you're brave at first, but then you get sick of it. And all of a sudden the talk is what? The first thing I'm going to do when I get home is, what do you say? I'm going to eat at, right? You've already got it planned out. I know where my first meal is going to be when I get home. I've been in that situation before. This is what they're doing. But it's coming from a place of fear. He says, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. This isn't just doubt. This is full-on distrust to the point that they are accusing Moses and the God who's leading them, not of bringing them out to save them, but to kill them. They're going to starve to death. This is their accusation. So in the first example, they grumble because there's no water. What does God give them? Water. Now they're grumbling because there's no food. What does God give them? Food. By way of what? Quail, and then what? Manna. And that manna would sustain them through the entire wilderness wanderings. That Every morning when they wake up, the manna would cover the ground, and they would gather it. And all of that was an exercise in trust. Do you trust God enough to sustain you? Because remember what he told them, don't collect enough for more than one day, because it'll be there again the next morning. Did they all believe that? No, because at first, what did they try to do? Let's, let's hoard it. Let's put it in a jar and keep it. And what happened? It grew worms and it got stinky and they had to throw it out. Because the next morning it would be there again. God will sustain. He didn't bring you out here to kill you. He brought you out here to save you and to bless you. When will you learn to trust Israel? And then we get to example number three. Very next chapter. Exodus chapter 17. Again with the water. They're running out of water. And they're in a wilderness, in a desert environment, and there's no water. And you think they would have learned the lesson the first time, but they didn't. And so, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You notice a pattern here? They get cranky, they get scared, and the accusations start to flow. You brought us here to kill us. Again, God provides for them. This time, Moses takes his staff, and he taps the rock as God directed him, and water comes forth from this rock in the middle of the desert. God will provide. But at the very end of that passage, we find Israel ask this question, and it's shocking in its nature. Even after that, it says, we name this place because this is where Israel put God to the test, and this is the question they asked. Is the Lord among us or not? And you think, how could they ask that question? After everything God had done to provide for them, how could they ask that question? But then if we'll be humble enough for a moment to turn the camera back on ourselves, have we ever been in those moments where in spite of everything we have watched God do for us in our lives, providentially to care for us and sustain us and provide for us, have you ever been in that moment where fear won the day and you thought, is God really with me or not? Have you ever been there? Israel seemed to be stuck in that place. How would they ever get out? What could bring them into full trust in God. And so I want, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to, to think of this whole saga in maybe a, a framework that you haven't otherwise. And if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, this won't be too foreign to you, but I would like you to think about God's relationship with Israel as the relationship between a husband and his wife. And God here is the husband and Israel is the wife. And you think about God is introducing himself to Israel through the plagues. 
And as he brings them into the wilderness and he's teaching them to trust in him, he's courting them, right? And now he's about to make a proposition. He's about to propose, as it were. And so you get to Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. God says this to Israel. He brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai, where they're going to spend a long time. And he's preparing them now for the covenant that he's about to enter into with them, so that he's no longer just the God of their fathers, but their God too. After he has shown them unequivocally that he will provide for them, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God gives his proposition to Moses, who then shares it with Israel. This is what God is proposing to his would-be bride. So Moses shares those words with Israel. It says, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, listen, this is what all of Israel is saying boldly and confidently. All that the Lord has spoken, what? We will do. They said yes. God proposes and they say yes. And so this marriage is about to take place between God and his bride, the people of Israel. They've said yes to his proposition, and now they're going to go in and prepare themselves for the marriage ceremony, which, gonna, which is going to happen at the base of Mount Sinai. And so God calls Moses back up on the mountain, and this is where in chapter 20 we find out about the Ten Commandments, right? These are, these, this is God laying out his covenant terms with Israel. This is what it's going to look like if you're going to be my covenant people. And he shares all that with Moses, and then embedded in chapter 20, we read this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, this is what's happening while Moses is up on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and we can't even imagine how intimidating that scene must have been, but they're watching all this. It says the people were afraid, and they trembled. And they stood far off, and they said to Moses, You... Speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, or else we'll die. And we begin to wonder now, did, did they really trust? Are they really ready for this commitment that they're making, this covenant that God is making with them? Or have they already started to doubt yet again? We're so terrified of the presence of Yahweh on that mountain that Moses, you talk to us, but don't let him come near us, or he's going to kill us. Just think about that. They said yes, but they didn't really mean it. And so all of this just to set up the three chapters that we're going to spend some time in over the next few weeks, chapters 32 through 34. This is what makes what happens in chapter 32 so shocking, is that it seems like Israel's finally gotten to a place where they trust in God, they're ready to commit to Him in this covenant relationship. They've said yes, but this is what's really going on. In Exodus 32 and verse 1, when the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, how long was he up there? Anybody remember? 40 days and 40 nights. He's on the top of that mountain. And they start to get worried. They see, you know, the smoke and the flames engulfing the mountain. And in their mind, maybe they're thinking he went up there and God just consumed him in his wrath. And he doesn't exist anymore. But whatever it is, they're worried. 
And they see that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, and the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Okay, we're going to break all this down in a couple weeks when we get into this chapter, but I just want you to see why this is so upsetting and so shocking. God has made a proposition, will you be my covenant partner? And Israel has said, yes. And as he's preparing them for this marriage ceremony, they're already backing out and saying, we don't know what's happened. And notice what they say. Moses, this man who led us out of Egypt. There's not even a mention of Yahweh God in here. He's gone AWOL. We need to make a God instead. Just like that, they've already turned their backs on the covenant. Before it even has a chance to take hold, they've already bailed on God's covenant terms. This is the story of the people of Israel. But the question we need to ask is what does that story tell us about God? What does a story about an obstinate, stubborn, unfaithful, untrusting people tell us about the nature of our God? Because guess what? We are an unloving, untrusting, stubborn, obstinate people. What can we learn about our God through the story of how he interacts with Israel in this moment? Who is God? And how will he react to this broken covenant? Because you and I have broken covenant with God before, have we not? And so what do we really want to know? How will God treat us when we, in our sin, break that covenant with God? Ezekiel chapter 16. We don't have time to get into all of this. I want to give you more homework. Yay, you love me. More homework. Okay. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 16. Okay, I, I, I asked you to think about God's relationship with Israel in, in terms of a covenant marriage. That idea isn't foreign in Scripture. And of course, Hosea is the most obvious example of that, right? But in Ezekiel chapter 16, there is a chapter there that is unbelievably profound. It's also very long, and so I'm not going to read the whole thing. And it's also very graphic. So much so that it's kind of uncomfortable for me to read in a public setting. God is running with this marriage analogy, and he says, When I found you, you were like a child who'd been discarded in the wilderness. And you were still in the blood of the birthing process. And I found you, and I cleaned you, and I helped you grow. And then I proposed to you, and then I took you as my bride, and then I consummated the marriage, and then I cleaned you again, and then I put jewelry on you, and I made you more beautiful than any other woman in the world. And in spite of all that, you acted like a prostitute, and you kept going after foreign men. And the language he uses gets crude and it gets crass to make his point. And he says, you know what? You're not even like a prostitute, because when prostitutes go about their business, they're getting paid for it. But you know what you did? You sought out relationships with other men, and you paid them for those relationships. And God is stunningly blunt with Israel in this chapter. And he's describing what we're seeing unfold in the book of Exodus, this constantly unfaithful people. But who will God be in light of his people's unfaithfulness? How will he react to broken covenant? And the way that passage ends is like this. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you. In the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. 
This is what we discover about God's heart and the nature of the God that we serve. That when His covenant people break that covenant, God doesn't bail. God doesn't abandon. God pursues. If that covenant didn't work, I'll just make a better one. And that's exactly what we see unfold in Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6-12, through 12, and quoting from Jeremiah, the author of the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the author of a new covenant. It's not a different covenant, it's a better covenant. And again, I would encourage you to read this passage in its entirety, verses 6-12, through 12, but he just says this, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, because it is enacted on better promises. When God's people are unfaithful to him in their covenant, He pursues them that much more. And he establishes a better covenant. Because God desires a relationship with his creation. And he will not give up on his pursuit of us. To what lengths will God go in order to bring us back into a covenant relationship with him? One last passage and the lesson is yours. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God, because, three words, God is love. Twice in this passage, John says the same thing. I want this to sink in. God is love. This is not an adjective used to describe one of the characteristics of God. He does not say God is loving. God is love. This is the perfect way to describe the entirety of God. He is love. He's not sometimes loving and sometimes not. He is love. And then he says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how God showed that he is a God of love. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God. The story of Israel and God is not a story about a people who loved God. It's a story of a God who loved his people. In spite of all the ways that they turned against him, he would not give up on that love. And so how does God prove his love? It's not by the fact that we reciprocate it. It's by the fact that he instigated it. This is how he proves that love to us once and for all, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. To what lengths will God go in order to bring us back into covenant relationship with him? There are, there's, no, there's no limit to the lengths he will go. He will go so far that he will sacrifice his son on our behalf in order to bring us back into covenant with him. This is the God that we serve. Who is God? He is a God who makes covenants with people. And he is a God who pursues those people he has made covenant with. God will not give up on us. When we are just like Israel, constantly being overcome by fear and expressing our distrust in God... When we are just like Israel, abandoning the covenant before it really has 
taken shape in our lives and transformed us into something new, how will he react to all that? We've already seen how he reacts to that. He sent his son to die in order to bring us back to him. This is the God that we serve. And that God is pursuing you in your life right now. Listen to me. If you feel that separation between you and your creator this morning, if you feel that distrust between you and your redeemer this morning, understand one thing. He is pursuing you this morning. And he's doing it through the perfect sacrifice of his son. Won't you trust in your redeemer this morning? Won't you set fear aside and give yourself fully over to Him and His will? He wants to care for you. He wants to provide for you. And He wants to bless you. Won't you walk in those blessings this morning? If you have any need this morning, let us know what it is. Let's stand and let's sing this song together. And if there's anything you need spiritually in regard to your relationship with your Creator and your Savior. Please think about that. Come forward. Let us know what it is. Let's all stand and sing together. Savior, He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation. Heroes and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. So take me as you find me, all my fears and failures. Fill my life again. I give my life to follow everything I believe in. Now I Jesus come.